Well, friends, we find ourselves back in the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the saints in Rome. And as we are in the middle of a cohesive argument that Paul is making from Romans 1 through 3, I want to take time by way of introduction to orient us as to where we've been. If you've been here every Sunday of the Roman series, we're going to trust that this is good for us to be reminded of what Paul writes so that we might be catechized, that we might mature and better understand the doctrine of the faith. And if you have not been with us every week, we will trust the providence of God in that as well, that you will be brought up to speed as to where we find ourselves in this wonderful letter. If you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. We're going to be looking today at Romans 3, 9 through 20. You will have a minute to find your way there as I'm again going to give us a a brief flyover of Romans 1 through 3, 8. So in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, we get what is effectively Paul's thesis statement for his letter. He wrote in that verse, Romans 1, 17, that the only righteousness available to mankind in the sight of God is that which is received by faith. And then beginning in the very next verse, chapter 1 and verse 18, he sets out to prove that that is, in fact, the case. He begins an argument, does Paul, in Romans 1.18, that does not conclude until chapter 3 and verse 20. Our verses today, Romans 3, 9 to 20, are the conclusion of this portion of his argument. In Romans 1, 18 to 32, we learn from the apostle that all mankind can be charged with ungodliness, unrighteousness, and wickedness. Because of the witness of the creation and of natural law, all men are without excuse before their creator. Human beings suppress the truth about God and instead worship the creation and worship themselves instead of the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And the evidence of God's wrath against mankind is that God has given man over to every kind of sin and debauchery. And then Paul outlines and describes these in a way that indicts everyone. Then in Romans 2, 1 to 16, Paul's gaze turns more toward the Jews who judge people who practice the things that he has just outlined and yet do the very same things themselves. Paul's word to them is, you judge people who practice such things and yet do them yourself. Do you think that you will then escape the judgment of God? You don't allow other people to escape your judgment. Do you think that you will escape God's judgment? Or maybe it's just that you presume upon God's kindness and his patience. But the apostle says that in fact, because you're unrepentant, i.e. because you're trusting in yourself, because you think that you are able to render unto God that which he might accept because you're blind to your own guilt, because you think that you will not face God's wrath because of your conduct, but that other people will face his wrath because of theirs, because of all of that, you are actually storing up wrath for yourself in the day of judgment. God is, after all, a righteous judge, and he's impartial. He shows no favoritism. He will render Reward to those who do good, and he will punish those who do evil without exception. 
everyone will be found righteous, a law keeper, or unrighteous, a law breaker. This is true for Gentiles who have the law written on their hearts. And this is true for Jews who have the written law. Then in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, Paul goes in even more specifically regarding the Jewish people, who he says rely upon the law and boast in God. But his word to them there is that you appeal to the law as though it will do something for you before the Lord, but you have not kept it. You rely on the law, but you have not attained righteousness under it. In fact, the very law in which you boast condemns you and you dishonor God by breaking it. Paul then addresses circumcision, perhaps the greatest, the highest appeal that a Jew could ever make. And he makes very clear that circumcision does not justify anyone in God's sight. To be a Jew, to be Israel, to be a son or daughter of God in truth is not a matter of birth or possession of the law or of outward sign. It is an inward reality. And circumcision that matters in the eyes of God is an inward reality as well. God's judgment penetrates to the inner recesses of the human heart. And only those who are found to be righteous at that level, at the level of the heart, will ever be justified in God's sight. Then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, in light of what Paul had written, especially at the end of chapter 2, he anticipates some objections and responds to those. In having the law and in having circumcision, if that does not justify the Jews in God's sight, then what advantage has the Jewish person? Paul's response is that the advantage of the Jew is much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, meaning they were entrusted with the special revelation of God. They were entrusted with his word. And in that word, they had the promises of God. They had the law of God, but most importantly, they had the revelation of God regarding his Christ. The oracles of God made it plain that God was a redeemer. They revealed the work that the Savior would come and accomplish. And they revealed the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah in such a way that he could be recognized when he came. And with the influences of the Holy Spirit, this was made effectual for the salvation of many Jews through history. But Paul asks, what if some Jews don't believe? Does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? To which he responds, by no means. The fact that many don't believe is attributable to the corruption and deceitfulness of man. God, for his part, is true. Always faithful. We are deceitful and unbelieving. He does us good, we return him evil. And so, should God ever take up a word against us in the judgment, he is just to do so. Paul then speaks as his opponents do. If our unrighteousness, if our sin and wickedness only serves to exalt the righteousness of God, then what's the problem? It seems like a good thing is happening through our wickedness. Maybe in light of that, God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. To which Paul responds again, by no means. For how could God then judge the world? The creation testifies that God is the judge. And if all this were true, that because our sin exalts God's righteousness, there would be no sin that God could justly punish. And all order would cease to be. 
Paul then says that he and the apostles were being condemned as sinners by these Jewish opponents for the doctrine they preached. And Paul turns their own argument against them. He points out their hypocrisy. Paul says, if my lie, if our doctrine of the law and the gospel, right, redounds then to the glory of God, why do you condemn us? If we're lying, God's honored in that because his righteousness is exalted according to your logic. So why do you then condemn us? Paul says that these opponents slander him and the other apostles, saying that they teach that people should just do evil so that good may come. While they are the ones who actually argue such a position and their condemnation is therefore just. So having done all of this, having replied to these objections regarding his doctrine, Paul resumes the argument he began back in chapter 1 and verse 18. And he brings it to a crescendo. And that is the content of our verses today. So let's look to them now. Romans 3, 9 to 20. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. We thank God for his word today and every day. This is a simple text. It's a very logical and cohesive argument that Paul has been making. I have a simple plan for us today. We're going to consider this text and reflect on it in three parts. So part one, two, and three, I'll give them to you as we go. Part one, we'll give this the header of bringing it all together. Part one, bringing it all together. Verses nine to 18, we're going to consider these verses together for a few moments. Paul had asserted the guilt of Gentiles and Jews in what he had written beginning in Romans 1, beginning in Romans 1.18. He had done this, though, in somewhat siloed ways. The Gentiles predominantly in view at points, the Jews predominantly at view at other points. But now, in a very explicit manner, beginning in Romans 3.9, Paul pulls it all together and pulls Jews and Gentiles under the same words. He's going to make very strong, clear statements about the entire human race. He's going to look to the witness of Scripture to show that all men, Jew and Gentile alike, are sinners. That all men are guilty before God. That there is, in fact, none righteous, no not even one. 
This is all headed toward verse 20, to which you're like, brother, we know. You've been telling us for about six weeks now. It is. It's heading toward verse 20. The conclusion at which Paul will arrive in verse 20 is what he has had in mind all along. That by works of the law, no flesh, no human being can be justified in God's sight. This is what he has set out to prove unequivocally, beyond any shadow of a doubt, in Romans 1, 18 and following. Put your eyes on verse 9. He asks, what then? Are we any better? Are we any better off? Paul is considering himself along with the Jews here. His answer is no, not at all. By no means. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, i.e. everybody, are under sin. People of every conceivable stripe are guilty when it comes to the tribunal of divine justice. And then in verses 10 to 18, Paul quotes a number of Old Testament passages. He does this to further prove his point, to demonstrate that this has always been God's testimony about fallen man. He quotes from the Psalms, from Proverbs, and from the prophet Isaiah. We're just going to look through these words and comment. They are relatively self-explanatory. You can put your eyes on verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Remember how over in chapter 2 and verse 7, Paul had said that he's going to render to everybody according to their works. And in verse 7 he says, Romans 2, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. In other words, for those who seek the righteousness of God's kingdom, for those who seek the Lord, he'll reward them. Problem. Nobody seeks for God. Put your eyes on verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Remember in chapter 2 and verse 10, again, Paul talking about God as a righteous judge. He rewards, he punishes in an equitable, impartial, righteous way. He says in Romans 2.10 that God will give glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew and the Greek. Problem. Nobody does good. He says it right here. No one does good, not even one person. Pretty comprehensive, wouldn't you say? All men fall woefully short. And man, how this offends our assumptions and our sensibilities about ourselves. You see, we all, I don't, I don't know everybody in this room personally, doesn't matter because I can speak for all of us because we all function this way. We all tend to think that we are a mixture of good and bad, a mashup of good and evil. And deep down, we tend to think, push come to shove, when the rubber meets the road, 
whatever your favorite cliche is, we're probably more good than bad. We have a lot of good moments. We have some bad things we do. kind of flares up from time to time. But generally, we're pretty good people. And we think, you, do, you can hear this language, it permeates the church in our day, or at least it has in, in my lifetime. We tend to think that all people, to some degree or another, are kind of curious about God. They're seekers, seeking the truth, seeking the Lord. And Paul, to all of that, is like, nah, bro, not true. Not true of a single son or daughter of Adam. Notice the redundancy, the intentional rhetorical redundancy of what he says. None is righteous. And he's just quoting the scriptures here. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one, Paul. Not even one. So Paul has indicted everyone. Jew and Gentile, every person, unrighteous. That's the verdict. He now, using Scripture, beginning in verse 13, is going to describe how this unrighteousness manifests itself. May the Lord give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we assess ourselves in our flesh. Listen to these words. Their throat is an open grave. Death is what we speak naturally. They use their tongues to deceive, manipulate, use other people, get what we want. The venom of a serpent is under their lips. Let the hearer understand. We talk like our father, I'm thinking John 8, right? In Adam, who is our father? The evil one, the serpent, who is the devil. The venom of a snake is under our lips. We speak. Our tongues are set on fire by hell, naturally. We curse other people. You see this. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We speak with bitterness and hatred. Verses 15 and 16. Paul then goes on to talk about our deeds, human beings in action. What do we do? Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in their paths are ruin and misery. If we're quick to do anything, we're quick to go and destroy other people. Ruin and misery characterize everything that we do. Then in verses 17 and 18, Paul goes on to mind and heart realities. What's underneath all of this? The way of peace they have not known. And then this. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the root of it all. To the core of who we are, everything we are is tainted. It's corrupted by sin. This brief Aside here, if you ever hear people use the language of total depravity, what is meant by that is very simple. It's that every aspect of our personhood after the fall has been affected, tainted, and corrupted by sin. That's all we mean. 
There's not an aspect of our personhood, body, mind, will, desire, that has not been corrupted. Consider the words of Christ himself from Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. It's not, not his environment. It's what comes from within. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The fear of the Lord, beloved, is in fact the beginning of knowledge. We've read that somewhere. Proverbs 1.7. But the problem for fallen human beings is that we don't fear God. And what does that mean? It means that we don't agree with Him about anything. We don't agree with Him in terms of what He's revealed about Himself as the all-powerful Creator who spoke all things into being. We don't agree with Him about His righteousness and His holiness and His goodness and His justice. We don't agree with Him in terms of what He says about us that we're lost and ruined by the fall. And that the inclinations and thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. We don't agree with Him about the only way of salvation. We are convinced that we can work our way to Him. That we can, in fact, render unto him something that he would accept and say, you're good. We don't side with him against our corruption, but instead shake our fists back at him. There is no fear of God before our eyes. So that concludes part one, bringing it all together, Jew and Gentile, Every man, every woman of every stripe, unrighteous, guilty. Which brings us to part two. Paul's conclusion. Paul's conclusion. Part two, verses 19 to 20. Let's look at these two verses. We're going to spend some time here. You can put your eyes on verse 19. I hope you're excited because these are the verses we've been working to for weeks now. So here we go. Whatever the law says, we know this, says Paul. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under it. And it becomes real clear, real quick, that every human being is under the law. Just keep reading. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. There it is. Every mouth is stopped. Everyone held accountable. Remember in chapter 2, verses 12 to 16, we learn that whether you have the written law, so think in the first century context, whether you were a Jew or someone who had been grafted into a community of Jews where you had the written law, whether that's true of you, or whether you were a godless Gentile who had the law of God written on your heart, Either way, you are under the law. And the law, says Paul, speaks a word to those who are under it. 
Massive question. What does it say? What does the law say to everyone who is under it? Pause button. Step over here with me for a second. Before we go any further, I want to be very clear what we're discussing here. Remember what Paul is writing about. He is writing about justification in this section of Romans. When you hear that word, you need to think the following. He's writing about our standing before God in the judgment, God's assessment of us. He's writing about, in writing about justification, he's writing about righteousness that will stand in that judgment. And he's writing about how anyone would ever have it. He's writing about righteousness before God that God actually will accept. And how anyone would ever have such a righteousness. So when he writes, Paul writes in this section about the law and righteousness and justification, he's writing about keeping the law for righteousness. Obeying the law for your standing. That's critical. So thinking about the law that way, what does God require for righteousness? How must we live if we would be just in his sight? What does it say? Consider. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. What does the law say? You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. Do this and live. What does the law say? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. What does the law say? Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. What does the law say? 
You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To those who seek to be justified by the law and to those who seek to earn righteousness through the law, the law's word is perfection. You must render perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. No failure whatsoever at the level of your deeds, at the level of your heart, your feelings, your mind, your thoughts, your will, your motivations, your desires. So the only conclusion that a sane human being can make is that when it comes to our standing before God, the law only serves to shut everyone's mouth. When it comes to our standing before God, this is how the law must be understood and how the law must be preached. You understand this? This nonsense of obey the law pretty well and God will be happy with you is wrong. The law is not a pillow for you to lay yourself down on. It is a sledgehammer when it comes to standing before God. We are crushed by it. We cannot bear its weight. We cannot meet its standard. There are, hear me say this, there are other uses of the law. God be praised. But not when it comes to righteousness. Not when it comes to justification. For example, we delight in the fact that in Christ Jesus, freed from the condemnation of the law, given a righteousness, we now can look to the law as good. And we look to the law and we desire in our inner man to live in accord with it. We talk like this. We encourage one another in that pursuit. But that is not what we're discussing here. That is not what Paul is writing about here. We would rightly understand as believers, how do we know what's good? How do we know what to pursue? We look to the law. How do we know what's bad? How do we know what to flee from? We look to the law. How do we know what's good for our neighbor so that I know how to conduct myself and bless other people? How do I know? We look to the law. But that is not what Paul is writing about in this section of Romans. When it comes to the law for righteousness, for standing before God, there is one use of the law. Hence, verse 20. Put your eyes on it. Look at what Paul says. For by works of the law, no human being, literally no flesh, will be justified in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So there it is. The final conclusion of the whole argument that began in chapter 1 and verse 18. He's driving it down on a wedge. Justification by the law is impossible for fallen human beings. 
Now listen, fam. Listen, friends. The law is good. Amen? Amen. The law is holy. It is a revelation of the character of God who gave it. There is no problem with the law. Amen? Amen. And if anyone was able to keep it, that person would be truly righteous and acceptable in God's sight. The problem lies not with the law. The problem lies with us. Our corruption. Our depravity. This is why no flesh is able to fulfill the law. The first and greatest use of the law is exactly what Paul describes here. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is how the law shuts everyone's mouth. Because the way that it's used in a corrupt sinner's life who's working for righteousness is to prove that you cannot do it. Which is why Paul will write later in this letter, in Romans 5.20, that the law came in to increase the trespass. To call sin what it is. He'll write in Romans 7, 12 and 13. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means, he says. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good. In order that what? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment, might become sinful beyond measure. So think big picture with me. We've been in Romans for a period of time now. Think about Paul's objective. Think about his argument. What is he accomplishing in the words that he writes by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? You remember Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, Jew or Gentile. In chapter 1 and verse 17, he says that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that begins and ends in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what's Paul's thesis? I know I'm using an academic term, but you know what I mean here. What's he setting out to argue for and prove? From Romans 1, 16 and 17, we know nowhere except in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God revealed for the justification of sinners. That is his objective. And so he begins an argument to definitively prove, chapter 3 and verse 20, that by works of the law, by deeds, by what we do, no human will ever be justified in the sight of God. And he does all of that so that what? Not to leave us there. So that he can then unfold the means that God has provided for justification. All of this that we've been considering for weeks is to prepare us to receive the righteousness of God. To receive it, not to achieve it. To receive the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
that's given to wretched sinners by faith. That's the entire project of the Apostle Paul from chapter 118 to 320. And so, any other conclusion from these verses is wrong. Wrong. If we're trying to weave even spirit-wrought obedience into anything that Paul is writing in this portion of his argument, we're wrong. It's not what he's talking about. Paul has crushed all of humanity with God's standard of righteousness revealed in the law to make it plain that no one has ever done it and that we are corrupt and ruined beyond measure and stand condemned. We have no righteousness of our own. And so, we are prepared by Paul's argument upon the revelation of Christ to sing not the labors of my hands, can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain flow. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Thus concludes part two. Part three. Some closing reflections. Really, it's kind of one long one, but we're going to reflect together on Christ and the law. On Christ and the law. Put your eyes back on verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Do you see that language of those who are under the law? You see that? We're in a season of the year where we uniquely reflect on the fact that God the Son became a man. The incarnation of God the Son. In thinking of this language, of those who are under the law, consider other words of the Apostle Paul from Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Consider Jesus of Nazareth. God the Son from all of eternity. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Born of woman. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. And born of the Virgin Mary. Born of woman and so truly man in order to redeem men. Yet conceived by the Holy Spirit, he didn't have a human father. And so he did not inherit the corruption of Adam as the rest of us have. 
He was born under the law. In being truly human, he, like us, was under the law. The law that he gave, by the way. But he, even having been the lawgiver, would live under it, subject to it. He did that in order to redeem those who are also under the law. In order to rescue us from our failure and corruption and ruin, and in order to purchase us at a great price. How did he do that? Well, he redeemed us by making satisfaction for our sins as our substitute in our place. He represented us. He was without sin, but was made to be sin for us. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with us. Our sin was counted to him. Our sins were put on him. And he bore them in his body on the tree. He took our punishment. He satisfied God's justice against our sin. He fulfilled the penalty of the law. And by his wounds, we are healed. His death is counted as our death. And so we are free. He redeemed us by fulfilling all righteousness. By being perfectly obedient. In other words, he redeemed us by keeping the law. He kept his father's every word. He always and only did what was pleasing to the father. He was made to be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Jesus, therefore, has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. His righteousness, his righteous life, his law keeping is counted to us as our righteousness. And his obedience is counted to us as our obedience. It is as though, wretched as we are, it is as though we have been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient us. He redeemed us by rising from the grave. This was a vindication of everything that he had done. And in rising from the grave, he defeated the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Jesus has defeated the adversary, the great accuser of the brethren. And he has triumphed over death and hell. How, though, is everything that he did applied to us? It's a legitimate question. Surely, we have to do something to attain this, right? Surely, we've got to at least do a little something to make ourselves fit to receive this redemption, right? Beloved, here's the thing about the gospel. It is a message that has nothing to do with us and what we would ever accomplish. It is not a message about us. 
The gospel is a message entirely about Jesus Christ. He accomplished redemption. He accomplished salvation. He did it entirely. It is, in fact, finished. It's over. Everything that God would ever require, He fulfilled. And we simply receive it with a believing heart. Back to verse 19. You see the language there as well of how the law stops the mouths of everyone who is under it. You see that. Remember what it says. Do this and live. Cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything written in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Never walk in the counsel of the wicked. Never stand in the way of sinners. Never sit in the seat of scoffers. Delight in the law of the Lord always. Live perfectly in light of the law day and night. Walk blamelessly. Always do what is right. Always speak truth in your heart. Never slander with your tongue. Never do evil to your neighbor. You must be perfect. And we know, hearing that, that word, we know that we are undone. And our mouths are shut. We've got nothing to say. We have no way to defend myself here. No way to twist this for my benefit. Our mouths are stopped by the law. But Christ's is not. What did he say about the requirements of the law? Christ hears that read. Everything that I just did went through. He hears that read and says, I'll do that. I have come to fulfill that actually. Think about what the law says regarding the penalty for those who break it. The wages of sin is death. Anyone who does not keep the law is under a curse. Anyone who breaks the law is liable to the hell of fire. Anyone who does not obey will face wrath and fury. And again, we know that we're done. We are rightly terrified. And our mouths are shut. But beloved, Christ's is not. What did he say regarding the punishment of the law? He said, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up. He said, I'll take the punishment of the law. I will drain the cup of God's wrath to the dregs and I will rise again. All glory be to Christ. The only hope for sinners lost and ruined by the fall. The only hope for lawbreakers born under the law is to have a Savior whose mouth is not stopped by that law. 
A Savior who can fulfill its requirements. A Savior who can fulfill its punishment. And beloved, we have such a Savior. The Lord has revealed Him to us in His Word. And I'm eager, as I know you are, to be able to consider the words that Paul writes about Him in the verses and the chapters to come. And it is because of Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, and Him alone that we have hope. And it's because of Him that we have peace with God now and forever. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray.